Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. knock the webs out. It's been a minute since I've had the opportunity to sit down with someone because of this whole COVID thing, but uh, luckily today I was able to sit down with a good friend of mine, an old friend of mine. We started almost at the same time at the state attorney's office over in Pinellas County together, and now she's running for circuit court judge. Liz Jack, how are you doing? Good, Josh. So nice to see you and your beautiful offices and your really cool studio here with skateboards and movie posters on the wall. It reminds me of your old state attorney's office. I know. I've, I've been told that I need to grow up, but if I just hide it in this little corner of the office, then no one has to know about it. Never. Um, so I, actually, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I started at the state over there in 2002. When did you start? I was there in 2002. What, what month did you start? Um, I believe it was June. Okay, so we, we um, pretty much started at the same time. Maybe May. No, I, April or May. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I was under Misa Twilliger and Dee Bartolucci. Do you, do you remember them? Very well. Yeah. And I still see them frequently. And I see Misa. She is now with she's Gold. Is with Peggy Sennett? Uh, no. Okay. She's with Tillman. And their office space is now with Goldman Wetzel, downtown oh, St. Sure, Pete. Oh, sure, Yeah. No, I know their yeah. office. I, there's a tattoo parlor right next to their yes, office. Yes, there is. Almost, almost utilized at one point. Um, now, if I recall, are you from Massachusetts, or at least you went to school up that way, didn't you? I am from Massachusetts. Okay. Whereabouts? Uh, a little town called Beverly. It's about 20, 25 miles north of Boston. Okay. Um, very craggy New England coastline on the water. A uh, lot of eccentric people. It was a very fun, cool place to grow up. Of course, I could not wait to get out of there, and um, I w- didn't go far. I went to Boston College undergrad, but now when I go back to visit, it's just so beautiful. the The original or the oldest wooded frame house in the United States is there, the Balch House. I think it was built in like 1609. And there's so much history. I have friends who live in houses that were built in the 1600s, and you have to duck your head when you go through a door. Um, Beverly's next to Salem, which is where the trials, sure. Yeah, actually, they were in Danvers, but historically, that's um, Salem is where they have the various exhibits and things and annual events at Halloween. Um, So there's just so much history. And we would always take the train into Boston. My kids still love to do that. I still love to do that. Take the Freedom Trail. What go was on. your what's your uh, surname originally? It's, I'm Irish Sheridan, and we have a, that, most of my family is from Albany, New York, and around Massachusetts. So there's that kind of Irish, you know, ir- those little Irish enclaves that are around there. So what, what's your? It is Jack. Oh, it is. Okay. Um, which is from Scotland. Okay. But I think long before that, it was from France. Okay. Have French Huguenots. No, Dina I would love I to went, go. Dina and I just went right before all this hit, and it was the most amazing trip. I, I, I you know, being Irish, we went to we went to Ireland in 2008 for St. Patty's Day, and I just loved Ireland. But we only stayed in Dublin. My family is from uh, Sligo, which is up in Northern Ireland, and actually, Dave Sweeney, who was a guest on the show, a couple, he was he was right around St. Patrick's Day. I brought him on. He's from Ireland and was grew up right near Sligo, but um, I thought Ireland was going to be, you know, nothing will top Ireland, and, and I'll still say nothing will top Ireland, but Scotland is neck and neck. It was just gorgeous, and especially if you're Scottish, I couldn't recommend a place just beautiful, just gorgeous, and the people are amazing. It was just, there's such a deep history there and such a, a storied and dark history there. One of the things that was funny I was talking to Dave about is, you know, a lot of it's been commercialized you know through the centuries you can be at an h&m but literally look at the guillotine where you know people lost their heads or this hill like these battles were fought you know robert the bruce fought on this hill and all this other stuff and it's all right there and you feel you you feel like you're in a novel just walking around there it's amazing so anyway but i digress so um we started at the state attorney's office at the same time you said you went undergrad boston college where'd you go to law school uh university of chicago okay well chicago's great too Yeah, it was a very fun city. Um, My ex-husband was in business school there, and a lot of our friends were in business school or law school. We were in our 20s. Um, 
we didn't have the reality of uh, the real world yet. We were still in school, so we just had a lot of fun. And it's such a fun sports town. We would go to Cubs games and um, never fortunate enough to go to a Bears game, but would watch a lot of them all together as a group. So. Sure, yeah. Well, so Dina's brother and sister and now her niece and her father all went to Tufts. So we would go to Boston all the time events at Tufts and then her brother uh, uh, Brian lives in Chicago he's a doctor in Chicago so we go up there and visit them and they live in Wrigleyville and so both you, you pick some pretty great towns to, to, to live in and then now you're in Tampa so oh yeah and the blues <laughs> in Chicago I'm trying to remember um, buddy guy had oh, yeah, a bar music. and he'd be in there oh for sure yeah um, one of my I, the, one of my favorite bands Wilco and they're from Chicago, and one of their one of their famous albums, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. They have the corn cob buildings. What are those called? You know, right there on the river. Uh, I, don't, I, don't I can't remember. That's fine. So, in any event, now, do you have any siblings? Or are you an only child? I do. I have a sister. Uh, she lives in Massachusetts, still in my hometown, and my parents are still there too. They're still alive and kicking. They are. They're almost eighty. Oh, wow. um, they both have uh, some lung problems, right. and so. They've been, but they're, they live on their own and, um, they have a wide circle of friends. They still hang out with all their high school friends and they get together weekly with them at and 80. at 80 and they all, they're almost 80. My mom would kill me yeah, if I said that her birthday's in September, but they have, they, I grew up going to a beach, a hometown beach. And so I go there now and it's still like I'm a kid and yeah. There are people in their 80s who remember me when I was a baby. And so my parents and their friends go down there and they sit in a circle every single day. So summer is like uh, when everyone comes out of the woodwork and regroups and gets together. Um, we're really there, of course, hoping that they don't have to social distance by then. But um, they're terrible. They're still going to the grocery store with their masks mm -hmm. and they come home and use bleach and all that. But... My sister and I beg them, you know, to have their groceries delivered, but yeah. no, they're very independent. Yeah, I just, I lost both my parents in the past two years, and uh, with this COVID that's been going on, it's in a, in a weird way, it's been a positive. I'm like, thank God they didn't have to live through this. Thank God, because this would have been what got them. I knew, no, just because my dad just smoked like a chimney, and he would, didn't listen to anything, you know, I know he would be <laughs> breaking every rule, you know, so... In a weird way, you know, I feel some sense of relief that I'm not having to go through this with them because I, I know I'd be a, a nervous wreck right now. Now, your sister, she's, is she an attorney or what does she do? And I know I've seen you since then, but I'm so sorry oh, no, about okay. your parents. No, I appreciate it. No, my sister actually was a secretary at a construction firm, and, which is where she met her husband, who's from Indiana. Okay. And um, then got into marketing there, and um, he is a project manager for some really big projects in Boston. Um, he's doing Seaport, which is a huge, like, residential hotel shopping okay. development on the water. And he did Gillette Stadium, um, which is where the Patriots play. And so they're just, they're awesome. We love to go up and visit them. They have this big house. They have, they all, they have three kids, and they're all, like very tall people yeah. uh, and they all have big personalities and they all have so many hobbies like boating and tuna fishing and clamming and my sister loves to garden and bake and she makes candles. She has a side business where she makes candles cool. and the kids play sports and it's just... It's entertaining it sounds it like. Is. Yeah. My kids and I visit and we have all this activity like and we leave. We're like, ah, yeah, it's yeah. quiet again. Well, it's funny because, you know, my parents were both very intellectual and kind of internal people and they would read books and it was always kind of quiet around the home. I was off drawing, listening to music, whatever. And my wife's family, being an Italian family with six of them, I go there and I get like this anxiety because uh, it's I, I just pick up on all of it. And it's like there's like six or seven TVs, <laughs> you know, TV sets playing at one time. And I just yep. like I got to step outside for a minute and just kind of let it all kind of click into place before I go back into the. The thick of it but um now is your sister older or younger she's two and a half years older okay so we i think that i came into the picture and i just totally upturned her world oh yeah, yeah. and uh, so when we were little we fought a lot and 
I just assumed it would be that way for a long time. And, um, but now as adults and having kids the same ages, we're best friends and I can't imagine not having her. Yeah. Are you guys similar or different or? Oh, uh, we're extremely different. Very so? Um, she's very domestic and she loves domestic projects and she's very, um, we both like to write, but she likes to write about her feelings and her inner world mm -hmm. where that feels too private to me to, sh you know, it's not something I or share like that way. Yeah. Um, and she's very much about aesthetics in her home and, um, I'm more out doing things. Yeah. So, yeah. but every summer I go up there and we sit on the beach and we talk for about a week straight. That's so, awesome. yeah. So are you the first attorney in the family or? Actually, um, I am not. My great-great-grandfather, uh, Thomas Reed Jack, he worked at a shoe factory. And then at night, he, put him, he would ride the train into Boston and go to Suffolk Law School. And he put himself through law school. And um, he ended up coming back, and he was one of the attorneys for that factory, which was the United Shoe oh, wow. in Beverly, Mass., which was this huge factory. It's now been all redeveloped in its office spaces and things like that. I think at one time it was the largest shoe manufacturer in the world. And um, one of my very earliest memories I can remember being about two years old, sitting on a workbench somewhere at a shoe factory, having those white baby shoes mm -hmm. tried on me. Oh, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, he went to law school. And other than that, um, there weren't a lot of attorneys or college. No, it was people in my family were more likely to, to take non professional jobs. Were they politically interested at all? Was that a big thing or that you can recall growing up? Other than current events yeah. and politics in the news, not so much. Okay. Um, but what's interesting is that now at my generation, uh, my cousin, Will Jack, became an attorney. He's in the D.C. area and uh, his wife, Tamara Jack, is also an attorney. So we've talked jokingly many times about starting Jack, Jack, and Jack. Jack, Jack, and Jack. Yeah. Jack, Jack Cube. Um, so what is it that, that, that interested you in the law? How is it that you went that way? I mean, was it something that you wanted from an early age or is there, you know, how is it that you decided on going to law school? Actually, um, I, at Boston College, I studied English and communications, English great, lit. Great undergrad study areas for law school. Do you do you really think so? Communication? Yeah. English? I think so. I, I was philosophy and religion and criminal, pol political science and criminal justice, which basically meant I didn't want to buy any books and you know just kind of skate through. So uh, I wish I would have stuck with the philosophy. I think it would have helped me more in my day-to-day -day life. But um, Dina did really well in law school, and she was an English major. Oh, I There was no master plan. It was just, um, you know, I gravitated towards what I liked, like many 17, 18 year olds. Right and wrong, do you think? Uh, oh. Were, were you a religious family growing up? I mean, was there a big, a big, you know, that sort of thing going on? Yeah. And the, and the English led to working and publishing before I went to law school, oh, really? which led to intellectual pro I was really interested in intellectual property because it was the early 90s and the internet had just come out. And I thought, I worked for a publishing company that published computer magazines, Ziff Davis. Um, and so, I knew that there were all these uncharted areas for who owned what, and I just thought it would be really cool to be a part of that. But when I went to law school and started studying, I was just fascinated with the criminal law courses and learning about mens rea and realizing there are different kinds of criminal intent. Um, but I, I do think from a very early age, I always was seeking a purpose. Mm -hmm a higher purpose than just having a job and I can remember a few incidents standing up for what I believed was right in a very in the way a child does very loud and very sure, emotional yeah, yeah. Um, standing up to the bully uh, I stood up to the principal when he allowed the 
fourth graders to use the large kickball field, oh, yeah. even though it was the sixth graders' long-term yeah. designated <laughs> field, and okay. I was finally a sixth grader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we Big got the field like back. And one time, my friends and I, we we shoveled off this whole area of the ice on this pond where we were going to figure skate. And we shoveled, shoveled. I mean, it took at least a couple hours. And then some boys showed up with their hockey nets, and they started playing hockey oh God, and told us so much to buzz off. And no way no. I wasn't having it. I think they were like three or four years older than me, but... We ended up figure skating. We always, you know, we always had this joke. She would tell me, you know, the, the bags that you would bring your school supplies to your class, and you'd have your pencils and your pencil sharpener. And she would always have like her four number two pencils, and they were sharpened. You could do surgery with them. And she'd always tell me about someone wanting to borrow her pencil, and she'd be like, "I, I had the forethought to get the right <laughs> number of pencils, sharpen them, and bring them, and you didn't. Why should you benefit from my being prepared?" So that's that. I, I can always pick up on when that part of her is kind of getting peaked by whatever the scenario is. And oh, so, I can so see that about yeah, her. Yeah, just a, a sense of, of what's 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 right and what's not. But uh, anyway, so what's funny too, uh, you know, with criminal law, coming from Boston, going to school in Chicago, I mean, those are two of the most storied towns of, you know, criminal, you know, whether it's Whitey Bulger in Boston or you got, uh, what's his face, Al Capone, Chicago, and I mean... The, the, criminal law there's definitely it's a big industry in both of those towns were those things you're aware of at a young age or um i think a little bit without getting to a lot of detail um <laughs> <laughs> there might have been some, some... dating connections uh -huh. in my family not me with um east boston okay. and the bank robbery situation what's the, what's the area newton or what's the is that yes newton? no south boston newton yeah. is actually uh near boston college okay. and is very upscale okay. and okay. nice okay. yeah well you mentioned your brother-in-law who's doing construction in boston i was like god there must be some <laughs> uh, yeah you know bumping yeah. in people there on you know getting the bid on this that or the other i think there's a lot of hidden costs of doing business sure. in a town like that for sure for sure so uh skipping ahead law school in chicago um did you it was you know in stetson when dean and i were there our kind of quote-unquote focus was we were on the trial team did you guys have any programs like that um you chicago did not have trial teams at the time it was uh the cook county state attorney's office came to have their table on recruiting day and i remember the sign up sheet and then the in my class of maybe 120 people there were two names on it me and someone else um, but i had known that i wanted to prosecute and i from when i fell in love with my criminal law courses sure. and and so I was always seeking them out, and I knew it was very difficult to get your foot in the door um, because I think a lot of people do want that job. Um, so I ended up doing internships at the Cook County State Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office, oh, wow. um, the Office of Legal Counsel, which advises the White House in D.C., trying to really Would that show... Was it Clinton? It was Clinton. And it was um, uh, Janet Reno mm -hmm. was the uh, attorney general. Right. And um, so I really wanted to show that I wanted it. Right. And so it doing the internship with the Cook County State Attorney's Office ended up leading to a job where I kept working there in a paid position writing legal briefs um the so state's response law school, yeah which kind of was a no-no but um you know i was able to continue to do it that's great now when you graduated uh did you continue working there what was your first job right out of law school well the plan was that i was going to work there and uh my ex-husband was transferred my last year down to Tampa. So that's how you ended up down here. Yeah, and he was in finance. So he had some connections with lawyers on deals he's worked with in the business, Sucker, on the business yeah. side. Um, so it led to meeting a lot of people and getting some interviews. But I also was very fortunate that I um, was able to get a federal clerkship. 
and I clerked for Judge Elizabeth Jenkins, who was a U.S. magistrate judge, and then Judge Susan Bucklew. And those were just amazing, wonderful experiences. And the other clerks I worked with were fantastic, and I still have relationships with them. Were you Um, over here in Tampa? I was. Yeah, I I grew up... I forgot who I was telling the story to, but I grew up across the street from Judge Kavakovich, so I've known oh. Judge Kavakovich all of my life, but as my neighbor, not as, you know, like, some massive personality, you know, in the middle district, you know, so. Judge K. Yeah. Did you, what did you father. call her? Uh, well, her father, if I recall, my, my, my recollection's getting, you know, cloudy, but I think her father was Judge Kavakovich, too. Uh, I think I could be wrong, but uh, we just always called her Judge Kavakovich. She would every Christmas she'd put candy on our front doorstep for my, like the what are those little foil candy balls that people give each other during Christmas. She always had these boxes of candy she would give around in the neighborhood. But she'd get up at like four o'clock in the morning, go for a walk around the neighborhood, take everybody's newspapers and throw them from the curb up to the front. Oh. She was almost like the marshal or the governor <laughs> of, of that area. She just kind of ran the show. But I love knowing that. Yeah, it was it's just interesting. But uh, in any event, so then so then did you interview with with or in the sixth or how was it that you got the job there? Um, for the. The, the clerkship. Oh, no, state attorney's office. I actually started at the state attorney's office in Hillsborough under Harry Lee Coe. I did not know that. Yeah, and that's how I met Mark Ober. And um, I lived I no in Tampa and we ended up moving over to Pinellas. And okay. I ended up, you know, moving my employment over to Pinellas too. And I interviewed with Judge Syracuse. Oh, yeah. And um, how long were you in Hillsborough? Uh, two years. Really? Yeah. So wait a second. You started. When did you start in Hillsborough? I f- did my clerkship '98 to 2000, okay, and okay. then Hillsborough 2000 to 02. So did I? So say... then you moved. Yeah. So you okay. moved from Hillsborough to right. Pinellas in 02. You had been doing it for yes. two years already over here. It was so long ago, well, that's, Josh. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so uh, yes, yeah, Judge Judge Cirque. It's so funny. Like everybody's judge now. That when we, you know. I've had Judge Labruzzo and Judge Myers and Judge Campbell and ju- all the, you know, uh, Syracuse, all these, Ballone, all these people when we were at the state or, you know, just down the hall. But uh, And Judge Palermo uh, clerked for Judge Jenkins. Judge Palermo. Now, that's a new judge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Tom Palermo. He was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I don't think I know him. He was at the Hillsborough State Attorney's Office, then the U.S. Attorney's Office. That, I'm surprised you didn't cross paths on any criminal cases. Maybe. I I, I really, I, I say this half-jokingly, I'm, I'm softening uh, mentally. It's it's. I think the two children, young children, the long hours, the pandemics, the passing of my parents, I, my, my, I am not as sharp as I used to I be. I think it's the virus. I yeah. think it's making us mushy. It used to be great with names of people, but now it's just like, I know, I know, I know you from somewhere, but anyway, so, um, so then over to Pinellas and then that's where we got to know each other. And now what you were, what divisions were you in misdemeanor? See if I can remember the judges. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. it was a while Freeman. ago. There was Freeman, I, there was times... Williams, there was Andrews. Uh, who else? Not, I would remember, I would have remembered Levine. some of those. I do remember Ju- Judge Freeman being in Judge Freeman's uh, courtroom. Who was the... For some of the time. Who was the guy that was in ordinance violations? Um, he's an attorney again now. Uh, Sonny M? Sonny M. Uh, a anyway. little bit, yeah. I, just the way my career has gone, I've spent more time going in different courtrooms and handling cases that yeah. are assigned throughout courtrooms and yeah. special prosecutions. I felt like you and Dina were in the same felony division, though. Weren't you in front of Deanna Farnell or uh, Ray Gross? Or I thought you guys she were... She was in D? I think, she was in D, I yeah. think so, yeah. yeah. And ju- um, Judge Grissinger was in there for quite a while. Judge Grissinger, who I've been in front of, and, oh. <laughs> that's not a... That's not a, that's not a exaltation of disgust it's just i've had a number of tough cases in division r recently so i've had to be on the, the working end of judge grissinger's ankle monitors and pre-trial release conditions those are very so difficult cases it's gotten it's gotten intense in there from when i was there i was there under don gibson and it was don gibson and kim um Anyway, I won't keep testing your names, but anyway, it was, I mean, it was always taken seriously, but it was run way differently than it's run now, and now it's, 
Well, no, Dora's Dora. Dora took over after Dom, but now she's in a she's a judge too. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I'm starting to feel bad about myself. Like I need to <laughs> I need to get going here. But uh, so then you did that for a while in felony, and then you left for a period of time, didn't you? I did. I left when my kids were young. Um, I went through a divorce, as you know, and I started studying and learning all about family law and conflict resolution and um, family law mediation. Um, as you know, in 2008, family law changed quite a bit big, here big in Florida, time, yeah. and there was a movement towards 50-50 shared parental responsibility, shared custody. So there was a lot of uncertainty about how things would go. Um, trying to figure out how to co-parent with someone was it was challenging for us, and I was just trying to get as many resources as I could and thinking that I would probably go into that area of the law. So my studies led me to USF St. Pete and Jamie McHale, Dr. McHale at the Family Studies Center, and he specializes in co-parenting. Oh, wow. So I initially went into it for personal reasons, and then ended up just falling in love with infant mental health and the whole premise of it, which is scientifically based, that 95% of brain development occurs from birth, birth actually prenatally, to age three. Yeah. And so we expect teachers, we expect um, so much from from educators, people in society to deal with kids kids emotional problems when they're age five six seven and it's it's already, it's already happened yeah. much of it unintentional some of it you know through abuse or neglect um so his mission is to build awareness of um, development and ways that you can improve parenting together for your children uh, it really takes a village so co-parenting is about um, everybody who's involved in the child's life. You don't have to have the perfect nuclear family. I was so worried that my kids weren't going to be okay. They really, it, it, it can be, it can look different than a nuclear family and the kids can still be okay um, if they're co-parented well. And um, so I kind of was traveling down that path and was Working with Dr. McHale, he had he has an infant mental health graduate certificate program, which teaches people who are already out in the field providing services to families who need extra help, um, teaching them about infant mental health, and which led to bringing some of the interventions into the court system through baby, it was called baby court at the time, and I ended up meeting um, Judge Lynn Tepper oh, in sure. Dade City. Yeah. Yeah. She was passionate about it, and you know, learning the effects of trauma and how a trauma-informed bench can help promote better outcomes for families that are in need or uh, end up in the family system. And so I was traveling down that path and felt very purposeful as well, you know, not to cut you off, yeah. but to know to know Liz is to know she. There's no half measures. She doesn't <laughs> dip her toe in the water. She's all the way in or all the way out. So, uh, you know, uh, you, you, I'm sure you probably know more about family law <laughs> than most attorneys who've been practicing twice as long. But uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you know you got that de that deeply involved into it. Well, thank, I appreciate your saying that. I know. Wherever my future goes, I have a lot to learn, but I, I also have the experience to know well, that sure. I'll do what it takes to learn well, what I need to know. Personal experience, having gone through it yourself, I mean, you know, it's it's tough because, uh, you know, before Dana and I had children, we always used to hate when people would say, well, you don't have kids, you don't understand. And we were both, well, we're intellectual people, we can understand, we're empathetic and all these other things. But then you have kids and you're like, oh, I don't think we did understand. And, you know... Same with going through a divorce, same with some of these things, you know, you can, you know, you can intellectually understand something and not necessarily emotionally understand something. And I think it's so important to have both sides of that, to both be able to emotionally and intellectually understand it, because only then can you really kind of zero in on what's at issue in a case. And so I don't know how it is in Pinellas, but a number, you know, more of the people that I've interviewed who are running for judge have been Hillsborough County attorneys. And I've heard more than once that 
Oftentimes, the chief judge likes to start new attorneys out in family law. One of the main reasons being is because they don't have to contend with a jury right off the bat because dealing with a jury is kind of a whole other aspect of it. So it's you kind of ease your way in with a bench trial and then work your way up from there. So in Hillsborough, at least, a lot of the new judges come in through family law, and most of them have no family law background. And some of them turn out great, some of them not so much. Uh, so I don't think it's, necess it's necessarily... A prerequisite but I think it, it it definitely shortens the curve like it, you you kind of can get it much more quickly having you know studied what you've studied and then having been through it personally I definitely think that that's a leg up yeah I I certainly hope so I think it's it's easy and probably the same is true for criminal law it's much easier to make decisions by deciding early on this is black this is white this is right this is wrong and most things in life are more complicated than that and so gathering the data and keeping an open mind as you learn facts I think is really important especially in the family court bench and understanding that people some people aren't going to look at their best they're not going to present their best selves um, you know they may have been affected by trauma trauma may affect how they respond to a situation so we think, oh, they don't look like a person who acts, and yet, you know, the more you know, the more you understand how it, it all fits together and probably can get a better idea of what's really going on. Yeah. Um, and I've, you know, done a lot of seminars and things since then. Um, family law, I've been getting CLEs in family law since I've been running for judge, and it's been really interesting, and there's, there's a lot of... Um, good professionals out there who are providing information, a lot of great judges. And today, hearing judges talk about trauma and hearing them talk about solutions, and for example, if there's substance abuse problems, creating ladder plans for easing visitation mm -hmm. in making sure the children are safe. Um, I'm getting chills because I feel like it's come so far in 10 to 15 years it's incredible. It seems like the field is really responding to the data. It is. It had. To, I, I feel it has a lot further to go. I, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in parental alienation and some of these other things that you that you see. Um, but uh, I, I don't disagree with you. But I cut you off. You were kind of working towards mm -hmm. coming back to the state attorney's office after all of your research. So. I got to know Judge Tepper, and she was very instrumental and open to bringing these interventions into the court system for certain families. Um, parent or infant psychotherapy is actually using the parent-infant relationship to get at the parent's trauma that then allows the parent not to be triggered in certain situations so they can see their child clearly and not abuse or neglect them. So when it's effective, it's amazing, but it's intensive and it takes a lot of resources. So she was, uh, we were working to bring those in through a program called Zero to Three, which is a not-for-profit that's national. So there, there are groups that have been doing this longer all over the country. Um, and so we would go to conferences and study the model and then bring the services in and we're just starting to talk in Pinellas County about um, starting it there and it's now it's now up and running called early childhood court oh, wow. but me being around the courthouse and old colleagues more as a result of this venture um, I realized that I hadn't finished prosecuting um, and that chapter of my life there was still some time that I wanted to spend there and uh, I talked to Bernie as you know it's very unusual well, to bring people, people back. back yeah I'm the first in Pinellas are you really yeah, I am oh wow well, I that, am. that speaks volumes in and of itself I have my volume in my I mean I have my badge my current badge and then I have another badge on my wall <laughs> very nice because you know they they're put you on that plaque one and, oh yeah because you, you <laughs> I remember my class of people we're using them a lot to like get into clubs and get out of traffic ticket or we're, we're pulling them out when they shouldn't be. So anyway, I think things used to be a lot more colorful, probably pre-social media oh, for, in the oh, world. Sure. Generally, well, this, you know, I'm a huge music fan. So I have this conversation constantly with people about all of our idols 
would not have the longevity of career that they've had at Facebook and social media and all that been around in Studio 54 and, you know, back then, you know, there's yeah. a lot of things that, you know, have gone on that they, they got away with. But so anyway, so since you've been back, we were talking a little bit before we got uh, started the show, you've been kind of uh, more specialized in uh, consumer I always, for some reason, I can't hold the phrase in my head. What, what's it called, the, the area? I came back into consumer fraud. Consumer fraud, okay. And we do a lot of consumer issues, um, worker, um, unlicensed contracting, and we worked with, or we do work with the county group, um, Pinellas County Consumer Protection. They are amazing. I think a lot of citizens know they're there, but definitely not everyone. They're, they're incredible. If the issue ends up being civil and there's not a criminal charge, they have free mediators who will mediate the case for a business um, and a citizen. It's not binding mediation, but um, it's still a huge service and it comes out right a lot of times. The criminal cases, especially the unlicensed contracting, would get channeled or do get channeled to our division. And Unlicensed contracting is just a huge, huge problem oh, here. Florida, for sure. Growing up in Massachusetts, you know, if you need a plumber or carpenter or whatever, you're probably getting a second or third generation skilled craftsman. There's a lot of the union up there, which I don't know how much we have down here. It feels like there's got to be some oversight, or at least theoretically would be some oversight. You know, they're not letting unlicensed people be their competition up there. So Right. I just think if you're... If you ruin your good name, you're pretty much going to be out of business. Down here, it's just a more transient population and a lot of vulnerable DEA, elderly you can people. You change your name and work under somebody else's license and all these different things. Well, I don't know if you can, but I know people mm -hmm. do. Well, it's funny because it, it seems like one of the things that you're kind of drawn to are, are fixing broken systems in kind of a way. Um, you know, with family law, with consumer fraud. Um, you know, I remember as a, as a prosecutor over there doing invest. So when... For those of you who aren't attorneys or have been prosecuted, what invests are is when a, a police officer is investigating a charge, they'll bring it to the state attorney and sit down with you and say, here's the evidence that I got. Do you think we have enough to file a charge or not? And so we, we've called those invests. And one of, one of the, most, the easiest ways to get rid of a case would say, that sounds like a civil matter. And so, you know, a lot of times there might have been a law broken or a criminal matter there, but it was just so much easier for a prosecutor to say, ah, it's a civil matter, I don't want to deal with it. And so you kind of leave people kind of in a, in a no man's land. You know, they don't know where to turn to get help. So it sounds like you're course correcting that a little bit there, or at least trying to. I hope so. Um, we, also, my relationships with the economic detectives who also investigate similar cases have led to me having a lot of white collar cases, right. business cases, fraud. Um, which can be huge. I mean, the, oh. the numbers, the money that uh, becomes involved. But what makes it criminal as opposed to civil, a lot of times I think prosecutors or attorneys look at the issue and, oh, there was a contract involved, so it must be civil. But the question is, was there fraud in the inducement of that contract? Right. Were there lies told to one of the parties to get them was to agree? Was it a lawful contract or not? Um, yeah. And... So we look a lot for um, cases like that. You know, businesses do go out of business. They're a bad people who cannot run a business well. It doesn't mean they committed a crime. But if they committed fraud um, and they were embezzling money or uh, lying to people to get them to enter contracts they know they could never fulfill, then that's a crime and we will prosecute it. And um, the office is pretty aggressive with that. Um, I also have some murders. Uh, which are a whole different animal, oh. especially if they're circumstantial. Um, they can just get massive. I've had cases with hundreds of witnesses, and, you know, you don't end up calling all of those witnesses at trial, but you have to manage all of that information. And um, if you do go to trial, as you know, um, we do a lot of the work ourselves in terms of well, actually, all of it in terms of how you how are you going to present your evidence, right. how you're going to present your witnesses, um, and then we have fantastic victim witness people who help coordinate. You know, calling yeah. people to get scheduling people. Um, but I, it, it's just funny. I hadn't thought about it. You mentioning systems, but it's kind of probably accurate. It's like I'm 
on one in one way your job is about improving the way you're doing things and improving the system for doing it and then separately you get to do these really cool fact patterns oh for sure yeah so, well, the last two people i interviewed were lee perlman and danny hernandez and both of them do a lot of murder cases and so we spent you know a good a good deal of time talking about those and my question was you know those are such high stakes how do you how do you do that and not let it get to you and they pretty much had the similar answers i mean danny's you know 30 40 years into his career i know them both yeah lee's on the airline both great attorneys mm -hmm. um but uh you know i i am a self-diagnosed empath and so i am i am a magnet for internalizing emotion and i you know murders would so i chose family law as the area to <laughs> oh that was smart yeah, yeah yeah but uh yeah with those murder cases i just those stakes you know breaking up a family is about as, as tough as i can get into when it starts getting life or death i don't think i could handle it um now this is your first time running for judge correct or am i not correct my only time your only time your first <laughs> and your last time uh what what group number is it group numbers over there uh yes 44 it's judge covert seat he's retiring it blows my mind that judge covert is retiring because so when i when i started i'm trying to think when this was if it was before law school or just after law school i taught a class at eckerd college with um, susan demers judge covert and myself and it was on picking a jury and i felt like he was a relatively new prosecutor because he was a police officer before he was a prosecutor wasn't he he was. I'm just trying to think. I get. I don't. I guess I don't know. I was an he a, an officer for maybe ten years. I feel like he was an office. He was a. He was a. I feel like he was a newer attorney. He'd been in law enforcement forever, but a newer attorney for how old he was. And then uh, I think he became judge right around the time that I left the state attorney's office. Well, that was twenty years ago. I know. It's. I just, a... I just, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't I've know lost. about you, but I feel like I'm still a kid. This come, well, look around you and look at this office, and yeah, I've got the same issue. But uh, yeah, so it, it he seems too new of a judge to me to be retiring, but I guess I guess that makes sense. And now St. Arnold is retiring too, isn't he? Is that... He is. And when I had heard about Judge Covert, I heard he was. We have mutual friends, and sure. I know him, but I didn't want it at all impose on his process of deciding. So I heard he was, and then I heard he wasn't. And as you know, um, circuit seats don't always come up. So like everything is so much more stagnant in Pinellas County than it is in Hillsborough, both with the judges, with the state attorney's office. I mean, you've got judges at St. Pete, you've got judges on the bench down there. They're like the Caesars in their own Rome. You walk in and, you know, when I have my friends in Hillsborough, like, what do you know about Judge Duransburg? I was like, okay. First off, don't ever talk over him. Don't ever interrupt him. Don't ever roll your eyes. Don't you know? Just let him run it the way he'll get it right. But he's going to do it the way that he wants to do it. But you have, you know, Rondolino and you have Ramsberger and you have Amy Williams and all these different people who, they've been on the bench my entire career. So just finally, has there been kind of a a you know regeneration with. Uh, St. John and Labruzzo and uh, Flip Coleman and uh, Greg Groger. Greg Groger. Uh, well, we could go on and on, but uh, there's finally some new blood coming through there. So that's, that's Josh my, Reba. <laughs> Josh Reba. Yeah, he was former, after me at the former state. Former cop, too. Yeah, he was after me at the state. Like, I didn't even know him when I was there. But any event, so um, well, you so he seat was opening up. I heard he was sure, then he wasn't sure. And so. Um, Anyway, I was very relieved to hear he definitely was because you, you don't want to challenge, you're not going to challenge sure. a, a sitting judge. Um, and I saw him recently and I couldn't help but ask, are you sure? Are you really yeah. sure? It was before qualifying yeah. and it was before social distancing and he's sure he's definitely retiring. So I, I can, I, I was in front of him not too long ago and I, I feel like he's ready for new, new horizons. I think so. We had a chance to talk and I think he, I mean, he's had a long and successful career and he's done the things he's wanted to do. And so I think he's ready for a new chapter. Have you had the opportunity in this process to sit with judges and kind of talk to them about their experience and get advice and that sort of thing? 
Yes, definitely. What what sort of you don't have to tell me who's saying it to you, and you can only you only need to say what you feel like about what kind of advice are you getting? What are the things that you're hearing? One of the things I'll I'll, I'll start it off for you. Um, in in talking to a lot of the people running over here in Hillsborough County, one of the things that they tell me a lot is there's a feeling of isolation being a judge that that you don't expect going into it because you come from this kind of collegial environment where you're either working at a firm or you're working at a prosecutor's office or a public defender's office and there's this camaraderie of all these people and once you become a judge you're kind of like you can't talk to people the same way you can't be around people the same way you're kind of cut off from the world so I don't know if that's something that you've heard or I have definitely heard that um, you, you've been up in chambers in Pinellas we don't know where this seat will go I don't um, as you know, you're running for a spot, but that doesn't designate your assignment. Sure. So, but you've been in the chamber um, chambers at the CJC, and it and they are pretty isolated. Yeah. And they say even though we're in the same hall with people, you don't really see judges roaming the hall and hanging out and chatting with each other. So I have thought about that because one of the things I like most about prosecuting and that job is. You are on the go all day long, and you're, you're interacting with so many different people. Um, I've heard that one of the statistics for what makes older people, not, I'm not there yet, but older people, retired people, happier, and it's um, the number of different interactions they have with people during the day. I actually live um, in a downtown area, and I just love being out and walking the dog and saying okay. hello to people. Yeah. Well, you come from Boston and Chicago, so as close <laughs> as you can kind of emulate that type of environment, yeah. And I don't know if that's true for everyone, but that's what I like. I, and so I've thought about that, and I thought about this that before I made this decision. But I've had jobs that were very intellectual Singular, and you're yeah. sitting there and you're studying and you're writing and clerking is very much like that so I feel you just have to be aware self-aware enough to know what's important and uh, find balance and give yourself the thing that you need for example sometimes after a crazy day of running around and interacting with a million people and changing hats and being empathetic to talk to a victim and then talking to someone else a different way, negotiating. Um, you come home, you don't want to say a word to anybody. You're completely filled up. So I feel um, as a judge to take the opportunity to be really involved with bar events and mentoring and, and get your interaction and fulfillment that way will help a lot. Well, I was going to say, and, and it's, it's meant as a compliment, so hopefully you'll take it as one, but I, I feel like as a judge, I can see you being a lot like Deanna Parnell, where she was kind of a trailblazer. She kind of changed the way the drug court was done. She wasn't content to just sit on the bench and do the calendars. She wanted to make it, fix a broken system, you know, change, make it better. So I could definitely see you creating... Uh, interactions for yourself over and above <laughs> just what you might normally have as a, as a circuit court judge. So I think you can kind of create the environment that you want if you if you take license to do so. So oh, uh, a couple of things that I've asked people that are running, uh, you know, I, 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 I ask them this question, but it always kind of kind of comes back to uh, the same thing is like, what do you think are important uh, components to being a good judge? What is it about yourself that you think uh, would make you a good judge? And I think we've kind of, you know, passively already kind of touched on a lot of them. I, I think trying to see ways to make it improve. But for me, one of the big, um, the big ones with judges that I see is, uh, and I'm losing the word, it's not demeanor, but it's... Temperament. Temperament, thank you. I've said it so much with every one of these interviews. I just, for, you know... I, I have a sense of humor, and I have I probably have an inappropriate one, and meaning I don't know when to turn it off. Uh, I so oftentimes I'm using it to get a point across in the courtroom, and maybe that's not the the, the time for it, um, you know. But I've always said that I think with a judge having a sense of humor, I don't mean being funny, but just seeing the levity of the situation, understanding the gravity of the situation that it's. You know, it's it's a very tough spot for people to be in, especially the litigants, whether it's in criminal, you know, the defendant or in civil, a plaintiff, a defendant, family law, a petitioner, respondent. I mean, 
these are the biggest things going on in their life. And a lot of these hearings, even if they're not make or break, they perceive everything to be make or break. I can't tell you how many family law clients say, we have a pretrial coming up. We have a pretrial. It's like a pretrial is not a trial. You, you hear the word trial, so you think it's, but we're just going to be talking about what the issues are. We're going to be talking about what witnesses we're calling. But you forget the lay people. All of this seems so huge to them. Every, you know, in criminal, we have... We have a pre, you know, with Mr. We have a pretrial next week. It's like, yeah, we're gonna just get another pretrial. We're gonna ask, you know. So everything is these insurmountable obstacles, and for us, it's just kind of treading water and getting, you know, incrementally closer to to some sort of resolution. But for me, because it's so grave to these people, having a judge who exacerbates it by exacerbates it by just being turning up the volume on how. You know, I, I, that's just not for me. And I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong way, but there's certain judges, I won't say the names, you can guess who I'm talking about, but you walk in there and it's just like, you know, are my hands in my pockets? Are my hands on the, you know, all these different things. It's like, come on, like, let's focus on what we're trying to do here. Yes, there needs to be respect for the bench, but there should be, I think it's a, it's a two-way street, you know. If, as a judge, you want people to respect you, I think, the respect you show to the attorney and the respect you show to the defendant. Yeah, they broke the law, but they're still human beings. Yeah, they're going through a divorce and maybe they had an affair or maybe there was a substance abuse issue, but you know, everybody's human. Everybody's got some skeleton in their closet. So we're all, we're all kind of going through the same life with each other. And the temperament thing, I just, you know, there's people over here in Hillsborough County, they ran and ran and ran. They ran two, three times and they finally get it and they're up there and they just seem miserable. They're mean to the clerk. They're mean to the state. They're mean to the defense. And I'm just like, what? Why did? Is this what you wanted? Is this what you were looking for? So, I don't know that that's so much of a question. Is more of a speech. But what's your view on this? I mean, have you thought about temperament? What your temperament might be? You know, what you've what you've enjoyed in judges and what you haven't liked so much. Very much so. I'm I'm in front of so many judges. That's been great. Um, I. I don't think things should be done one way just because they've always been done that way. Um, so I think sometimes if you're assigned to one courtroom and only one courtroom, you don't get the same perspective as when you're in front of different judges and you see different ways of doing things. Um, so should I be fortunate enough to be elected, I would love to spend a good deal of time observing different courtrooms and seeing how judges do things or the chambers. I know a lot of families in chambers. Um, but I was on the JNC, and no secret, one of the questions that uh, we ask every uh, applicant is to list in order of importance what they think um, of these qualities in a judge, hardworking, competent, and temperament. And a lot of times uh, people say temperament, which I understand, but having seen such a variety, I think that for me, it's competence because if you get to a point where you can let the um, discomfort of someone who, of an abrasive judge roll off you and just accept, hey, it's not about me, it's about them and I'm just doing my job, but they're ruling the right way, that to me is most important. However, I've thought, I've thought a lot about this actually. Well, that's good. And it's um, funny because I've had this conversation and it usually, with most people I talk to, and I'm glad you brought that up because it reminded me of it, it usually boils down to a tug of war between competence and temperament. And I don't know why they have to be mutually exclusive. I don't think right, they do. Right. But we always like, you, you can only have one, which one is it? And you, I mean, having both is, is, is great. But for me, I would take temperament over competence because I'm happy to help a judge along if, if, if they're being nice. So, but I, I don't know that that's the right thing. So I'm, well, I'm interested to hear your take on it. It's like if you're in a life raft, do you want to take confidence well, yeah, or temperament? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, the thing about temperament though, so the thoughts that I've given to this are with respect to temperament, what I see happen is that it affects the attorney's ability to be effective because they're walking on eggshells, they're afraid to make an additional argument, they're, they can't think clearly because, you know, the brain, everything, all cortisols go into their limbs because yeah. they're in fight or flight mode and they're not thinking clearly. And when you have a judge with a good temperament, you can, you know, take a deep breath and make your best arguments and best represent your case. And so I don't know that a judge 
can be competent unless they have a temperament that allows attorneys to do their best job. And we all know the courtrooms that we love being in are judges who um, have a good personality and we like spending time with them. And they are funny, but not inappropriately funny. Um, and they get down to business, and then most importantly, they rule the right way. Yeah. And so, and I, you know, when you're in a courtroom where the judge is very, very pleasant, but doesn't always um, make the decisions that you think should be made, that's that can be very frustrating. Well, I think as a litigant, uh, you're someone who's actual party to the case. I think they're always gonna say confidence over temperament because they want the right result so i guess maybe oh, it's somewhat of a okay. selfish position as an attorney it's just like i don't want to have a hard time you know <laughs> regardless of what the result is i don't want to have a, a a you know an uncomfortable experience so that's interesting that might that might tweak the way i look at that but uh it's funny uh, speaking of temperament tom freeman ha do you remember judge freeman i do and i'm not gonna say anything bad but um he one of the best things that he said and I always remember is the best closing argument you give is the one on the way home after trial. And it's speaking <laughs> to the temperament issue because when you don't have all that pressure of objections and having them sustained and being called to the bench and mistrials and all this other stuff, and you can just have that flow state where you're just saying what you meant to say, you know, the trick is getting to do that. And I think after a period of time, you and me in other ways, you know, you get to where you're, we're more comfortable that way. But as a young prosecutor, you're definitely, it's a minefield that you're walking through. So, you know, all the prosecutors are keenly aware of who's got good temperament and who doesn't. But um, it, it's such a great experience because it's just promoting growth and you're developing skills and you're developing personally and yeah. um, uh, you're learning how to fight through that. You're learning how to deal with um, stress and anxiety and uncertainty. There's so much uncertainty as a prosecutor. Uh, it's, I think it's great preparation for, for whatever for you do. I mean, how's, how have you found the process to be? Has it, has it been more work than you expected? What you expected? What, what's, you know, what has caught you by surprise about this process running for judge? Wow. It's been more everything than I expected. I, I, I knew it would be a lot of work. I think that's why people choose not to do it um, or put off doing it. It's like jumping in. And it's, it's almost like running a small business, but not knowing how to do that. You and you have yet. a very limited amount of time to do that. Um, and you're constantly outside of your comfort zone. And instead of times when maybe you would take time to be quiet, you, you can't be quiet at that time. You have to interact you with people. You've always got to be on. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's not uh, phony or disingenuous. No, no, it's it just, way, right, right. You would just, you <laughs> you'd rather be home because you've yeah, just talked for, for nine sure. hours. and uh, Or at work, you've talked for nine hours. So I it's, it's allowed me to make connections um, I otherwise wouldn't have made. It's allowed me to get or seen that people support me. One of the things that has been huge to me, and I've been telling this to young attorneys, is everyone tells you that the relationships you build over the years really matter and how you treat people really matter. So, you know, and I know you and I know Dina and how you are as people. You're going about your life and you're being kind and you're being thoughtful and you're building relationships because that's how who you are. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're asking for help. It's for someone who's a doer to suddenly be in a position where you're asking a committee of people to help. It's hard to be. Uh, yes. Depending on dependent on people when you become so independent, you know, for sure. And then to have people step up and say, I want to help you because of how you've been to me and all the help you've given me. And none of that was over the years with some ulterior motive. It, and it was because it was the right thing to do, especially with law enforcement. I have a lot of law enforcement helping me. And I actually um, was at the Pasco Sheriff's shootout and was talking to a, like, cold call, walking up to people, introducing myself, handing out cards, and I met someone who was a defendant in a case about 18 years ago, 
and he talked about the case and how it went and how he felt I had been very fair. So it was a case you? Yes. Oh, wow. He's like, I, I saw you were That's running huge. and I knew I knew your name. And he mentioned, he told me who his attorney was and the facts of the case. And I remembered I remember it. it and he had been a veteran and volunteered for things. And he said, your push, your resolving it that way, uh, like allowed me to do things in my life I other otherwise wouldn't have done. That was because it was the right thing to do, you well, know? compassion might be another, I don't know if that's temperament or competence, but compassion, I think, belongs in there somewhere too. So, so he's going to help me. So it's just been an amazing, yeah. I hope that, no, no, I hope that the experience is about winning. Yeah. Like, I hope that's what the journey is about. Regardless of that, I know I've been growing through right. the process and it's it's been amazing. So it's a wonderful experience and I'm really, really glad I'm doing it. Um, but I also, it's something that ends, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. I'm really excited about the possibility of being a judge, learning how to be a good judge. If it's not criminal law, um, learning that whole new area is exciting to me or building on whatever, what I already know in whatever area. Um, so I'm, I'm just really excited about the next chapter and I'm so glad I had this experience. The other thing um, is I've gotten to meet attorneys or get to know attorneys in so many different kinds of law. And I think that that will really benefit me. It's expanded my mind yeah. about the kinds of things that private attorneys go through. For sure. You know, as, as a prosecutor, you have the weight of the state attorney's office behind you. So when a defense attorney is dealing with you as an assistant state attorney, they're dealing with your office. When you come out and you are working maybe for yourself like I did, and I no longer had the weight of the office behind me, I definitely was treated differently. And that's not a comment on the, the person, but that that's, uh, you know, something that I definitely noticed coming out in a private practice. And then in family law, you know, there, it's kind of an even playing field. Whereas in criminal law, when you're going up against the state, you often feel like it's not even more so federal because, you know, with, with family law, you can kind of trade paint a little bit with the other attorney, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get into it with each other. There's a, a little bit more of a political aspect of it with the state attorney's office. You know, you don't want to burn a bridge that you might have to walk over later down the road. So there, there is definitely a, a component uh, of being able to see the dynamic difference between the criminal and the civil, because it is a different experience that I've, I've noticed over that period of time. Well, I, I, I've talked to you for over an hour. Um, before we go, uh, where can people find you online? Do you have a website? Do you have social media? How can people follow you? And Yes, I'm actually all virtual these days. Um, my website is www.lizjack4forjudge.com. I think you can use the number four too. Uh, and on Facebook, Liz Jack for Judge, or my personal is Liz Jack. Um, my number's there. People can call me not being able to get out and grassroots campaign and meet people and shake hands and tell them in a minute or less oh, about yeah, myself you, has been difficult. That's, that's, thank you for bringing that up. Cause I didn't even ask you about that. I mean, you're having to campaign in a way that no one has ever had to campaign before. How's that been? It's like suddenly learning how to campaign all over again. There was a learning curve when I started campaigning and then it started flowing. You're the first and... <laughs> person who's running for judge since this has all happened. So I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I've, I've, I can see that that's the issue, but yeah, so. I was kind of quiet for the last six weeks because we didn't know that how bad the effects would be. Obviously they're terrible, but I think our area somewhat has been spared at least for now. And, um, People, businesses, you know, yourself, like trying to figure out what a new way of uh, practicing is. So just kind of waiting to see what happened, but qualifying was last week. So I... one other person, right? Right. Okay. And the election's in August. So 
it's I don't have a choice anymore. I don't know if social distancing will lift. I don't know if I can have meet and greets in person. So we're just trying to figure out how to, as creatively as possible, virtually meet voters. Um, attorney support's wonderful, but you also need to try and meet um, additional voters in order to win a campaign. So. Well, you, you know, uh, all I see on Facebook, and I, I even started a supplemental podcast. I did my first one last week where I, every week I do recommendations for movies and all this other stuff. But people are consuming, you know, TV, podcasts, music. So it's just figuring out where their eyes are and getting yourself in front of their eyes right now if you're not going to be, you know, one-on-one -on -one with them. But how you do that, I mean, if you figure it out, let me know, because that's the plight of every private practice attorney is how do I... How do I get myself in front of people's eyes? There's so much competition and saturation, and you know how do you do it on a budget and all these different types of things? So I can only imagine. Um, well, I appreciate you so much for coming here. Well, thank you There's so much for having about, me. Was there? No, it's just a conversation yeah, with right, an old that's friend. Right, that's right. So anyway, thank you so much for coming by. I wish you the best of luck. Everybody, get out there and vote. Look for Liz Jack. I've known her forever. She's an amazing attorney. I know she'll make a great judge. And. Uh, Stay healthy. Take Thank care, you so much.